Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Hello, Robbie. My name's uh, Dr. Richard Mills. Um, I've got a background in English literature, most specifically Irish literature. But in the last 10 years, I've been absolutely fascinated with um, writing about popular music and writing about fan cultures. I've published a book called The Beatles and Fandom. Sex, Death and Progressive Nostalgia, which is quite a title. It's published on Bloomsbury. And in it, I look at um, many myriad aspects of Beatles fandom. And I know we're going to talk about that on the podcast. I've got two books coming out next year. I've got an edited collection called Beatles and Humour. And in that book, we've got all the top scholars um, in the world, Beatles scholars in the world, talking about the Beatles and humour. Names such as Ken Womack, uh, John Kovach, Walter Everett, um, they're all in the book. And I've got, another mo- I've got another monograph coming out next year called The Beatles and Black Music, because weirdly enough, no one has delineated the influence of black artists on the Beatles. I can't actually believe that nobody... Um, has done that yet but from chatting to you just before we started recording I can tell that you're really interested in fandom conspiracy how fans react to a huge cultural leviathan like the Beatles so hopefully we can talk about that um what's got your interest into the Beatles my interest it's it's my brain was colonized by the Beatles when I was two years old I it was way beyond my own uh, volition my one of my first memories is my elder brother singing a Beatles song. So what 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 chance have you got, Robbie, when your your brother's singing Beatles songs to you? Um, but I'm I'm a second generation Beatles fan. I got into the Beatles in the 1970s after they broke up with the Red and Blue albums and lots of those dodgy compilation albums that came out in the 1970s to try to keep the whole Beatles phenomenon alive but i've got very sort of sepia weird memories of the beatles in the 60s i don't remember them together but i remember adults singing their songs i remember um people talking about them so i have all these little hazy images as i said that were um colonizing my brain right from the start so i was born on the uh 12th of september 1964 and just recently i met one i've got an elder brother who's 12 years older than me I met one of his friends who remembers being around our house before I was born. And apparently my mom was spinning with the Beatles, you know, the vinyl record again and again and again. So I actually got it wrong at the start of, of this podcast. I, I, I was probably listening to the Beatles before I was born, which I think is quite amusing. In fact, I was listening to the Beatles before I was born. When did they take off? Was it, I mean, I, they, they were really big, I would say, in my research into the counterculture kind of movements of the 60s and 70s. You know, you hear a lot about this anti-Vietnam aspects of things. But what what was their, like, kickoff? Like, when did they, I mean, I know there are a couple of kids from Liverpool is usually what I end up hearing. But, I mean, they have to have some type of impact in such a early stages to transgress into what they are now. It's Honestly, I teach a course at St. Mary's University, Twickenham, London, called The Beatles and the Counterculture. And I just say to my students, just think of the Beatles story. It's like a big, f- fabulous novel with all these host of characters that, that collide and interact and break apart. I mean, the story is almost supernatural. You can hardly believe it. Their first single was called Love Me Do. And it was released on EMI on the 5th of October, 1962. And it only got to number 17 in the UK charts. But after that, from that moment on, from early 1963 onwards, they um, became the biggest band in the world very, very quickly. So we've been with the Beatles for um, 
60 years. But I mean, I've just been researching their prehistory and everything about them. I mean, it's quite, it's quite remarkable. All the little coincidences that, that meant that the Beatles became so popular. I mean, still to this day. Did they get airtime? Did they get proper airtime? I know with Kiss, they, they wouldn't be played on the radio because of all the makeup and the kind of uh, looks or style of it. They just would, did not get any radio time. Oh, this is, this is very, this is key with the Beatles. They, if you look, if you Google pictures of the Beatles from 1960 to 1962, before they were famous, they look like a punk group. They're wearing black leather. They've got quiff Elvis style haircuts. They've, they played um, it our it our sets in the red light district of Hamburg. John Lennon would kick people off stage. They were taking diet pills, which were in fentanyl to keep them playing all night. They were drinking heavily, and they were just this roughhouse um, sort of nascent punk blues group, you know, rock and roll group. And what happened is that. They met Brian Epstein, their manager. Um, he saw them first in the Cavern in Liverpool in 1961. And he just said, listen, guys, you're not going to make it unless I package you properly. So the Beatles, as John Lennon said, were a little bit like the Trojan horse. So the first wave of their success, they've got identical mop-top haircuts. They're all wearing suits. They're all wearing Pierre Cardin suits. They're dressed identically. They've got identical haircuts. They actually bow at the end of songs in unison which is so bizarre so they're like this little um commodified identical pop group they're like a nascent boy band in a sense so they were seen as the boys next door the grannies loved them the parents loved them and it was only from 63 to 65 they were just seen as lovable chaps nice guys you know the boys next door you know, you wouldn't mind your daughter going out with the Beatles. They were they were beloved from toddlers to grandparents. The Queen loved them. So you can imagine the sort of the shock in late 65, early 66, when there's the Beatles start writing songs about politics, about psychedelic drugs. Um, the whole sort of image started to crack in the period 66 to 67. And it's, it's really, really interesting because the Beatles' initial um, USP was good-looking guys, identical stage uniforms, identical haircuts, and the, the demographic they initially appeal, appealed to was you know girls from the age of 10 to 14, and they just screamed at the Beatles. And the Beatles' songs were all directed at their audience of 10 to 14-year-olds. I mean, their early songs are called Love Me Do, she loves you. I want to hold your hand. P.S. I love you. They just keep selling love, the image, young, single, accessible guys. So they're really just playing up to a teenage fan base. Around 65, 66, they are changing as people. When I was I was listening to my car the other day to I Want to Hold Your Hand, and in my head, I just go, they're just singing about holding hands, but it's good. It's like, no, it's, it's a really, it's a really good song. So the, the point is their image was entirely cleaned up when they played in Hamburg. They were a very rough, rowdy rock and roll band. They, their manager, Brian Epstein, got them in shirts and ties, tidied them up, presented them in a really show busy, um, glamorous way, which appealed to young teenage girls. They were initially um, a boy band so they had to clean up and then around 65 66 the Beatles were really in danger of being passe but they started they started writing songs influenced by the who and the birds and the stones they started to become a very contemporary act in 65 66 and inadvertently they then started to sell themselves as um, embodying the 1960s counterculture so they went from a boy band in matching uniforms to long-haired psychedelic um, artists, if you like. So the whole trajectory of the Beatles' career is pop stars in nice little suits singing songs about love. That was from 62 to broadly 66. From 1966 to 70, they have transformed 
into artists, long hair, um, scruffily dressed, absolutely embodying the 1960s counterculture and the subject matter of their songs. They're writing songs about transcendental meditation, about um, revolution, about the riots in Paris in May 1968. They're, uh, they're putting experimental classical music on their albums. I mean, the White Album has a track called Revolution Number no. 9, which is eight and a half minutes long. And it's absolutely influenced by Karlheinz Stockhausen, the, uh, the, the German experimental composer. They were influenced by Steve Reich, uh, Philip Glass, Berio. So they're doing experimental music by 1968. And this is fascinating as well. As I said, their first single was on the 5th of October, 1962. By their Revolver album in 1966, they've completely transformed their act. On the Revolver album, they're writing a song called Eleanor Rigby, which is about psycho, um, psychological alienation, urban isolation. And it's got two characters in the song, Eleanor Rigby, who is lonely, a spinster. And then she's destined to meet Father Mackenzie, who's a priest who's giving sermons to empty churches. And she's going to meet him. And she meets him at her grave. And the song, the last line of the song is, nobody was saved. So by 1966, the Beatles are couching atheism in a pop song. They are putting in references to declining church attendance in the United Kingdom. They, they've got the dime store novel approach to songs where characters meet each other. Also on the Revolver album, they've got a song uh, influenced by the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is backward tape loops squeaking like seagulls. It's supposed to be Buddhist monks chatting on the hillside. And it's absolutely disturbing. The, the teenagers, when they heard this music, they were initially shocked by it. In fact, the Queen of England went, the Beatles have gone awfully funny. So th th their career is in two parts, really. They're like the Trojan horse who are wheeled into the town, and they're all they're all obfuscating that the fact that they're arts. They were John Lennon was an art student. Paul McCartney's a really sharp guy. They're really experimental. They're really creative. They're really artistic. They're really intelligent. But they covered that initially and wrote songs about love. Brilliant songs, yes, but the lyrics were not exactly pushing the envelope. After listening to Bob Dylan, after experimenting with some of the um, the disco biscuits, shall we say, from the 1960s, they transformed into absolutely the one group that represents the 1960s. The Beatles are completely synonymous with the 1960s counterculture. Did the, do you think that they experienced something that caused them to change, or do you think they were just finally comfortable with trying to be maybe the creative talents that they were initially from the start before they kind of had to put this suit and tie on? And I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, that Trojan horse aspect is in a lot of things um, when it comes to some certain celebrities and their rise to stardom. There's this they, they experience this change. But I was like, what happened? It's like, well, they didn't just randomly have this snap. Something happened to them, and it wasn't maybe they were just tired of playing a fake character playing something that they felt like they weren't and i mean their songs are so impactful i mean today kids listen to them i mean do they know a couple sure but i mean th there's a lot of power in it and i think everyone addicts it to or sticks it to the category of drugs and i'm sure there was some of that in there but i don't think it just stands for that i also think it caught the times and if you look at the times of the 60s um, it was all activist movements. It was all speaking out against war. It was kind of this, and the, it, nobody was really doing it. It was like this rise of underground press. I mean, yeah, Bob Dylan singing some songs about it, but uh, people, it was feeling it from the nation or feeling it from people. Now it's not residuating with this boy band. It's now this thing that is now understanding what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what as a nation we're feeling. No, you're absolutely right about that. The Beatles were intelligent. Um, self-conscious creative people before they actually made it as a pop group um, they were John Lennon was a voracious reader um, Paul intelligent, George intelligent in fact the, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison they all um, were scholarship boys which in the UK means that you sit an exam called the 11 plus and if you pass it 
it doesn't matter what your background is, you get streamlined into one of the top schools in the United Kingdom. People tend to forget that about the Beatles, that they, that John Paul and George were being streamlined into the middle class because they were intelligent. Also, their early work is absolutely informed by African-American girl groups as well. So I'm not actually comparing it unfavorably to when the Beatles turned into contraculture contra icons. I mean, their first two albums are full of cover versions by the Shirelles, the Cookies, the Marvelettes, African-American girl groups. So their music has real, is real emotional power. They're, they're, it's really, it's, it's bluesy, it's tough. And John Lennon and Paul McCartney also both lost their mothers at a very early age. So there's this little, it's the, it's the grit that makes the, the, the pearl and the oyster. There's a little bit of edge in their early songs as well. So these, these they're probably the most uh, intelligent sort of pop stars of that period. And they absolutely do represent the 1960s zeitgeist. And I don't think it is a case of them starting to experiment with marijuana, smoke dope with Bob Dylan, or drop acid and they completely transformed. You already had four very innovative, restless, intelligent people who are open to change. I mean, if you look at the, the canon of Beatles records, there's only 13 albums and they did them in six years. They were absolutely restless. They wanted to change. They listened to classical music. They went to art galleries. They were they already were creative people before um, they got swept away on the uh, the whole tide of the 1960s counterculture. So we shouldn't be surprised that their work is so disparate. An example of how um, innovative and how imaginative they actually were is that George Harrison was 26 years old when the Beatles broke up. I mean, and they were only together as recording artists doing albums apart from their first single in 1962, they were only together for six years, at the top six and a half years. And in that period, they did English pastoral folk picking music. They did experimental classical music. They did rock and roll. They did three-way harmony, um, African-American girl group type songs. I mean, it's incredibly diverse. And the fact has to be stated, these were intelligent, imaginative, um, restless people. They could not stand still. Um, so absolutely, they were, I suppose they had a slight image to get them across to the British public in the first place. And if they hadn't have had that boy next door image, if they hadn't have worn suits, if they hadn't have had nice haircuts, if they hadn't have appealed to the brannies, they definitely would not have made it as big as they did. I mean, when they arrived in America and played the Ed Sullivan show on the 9th of February, 1964, they've got their act down pat. They're in their suits. They've got their nice little haircuts. They're playing standardized three-minute pop songs about love. They're bowing in unison after each song. They're packaged, they're commodified. As their fourth LP, it was called Beatles for Sale. Now that is really, that is the title of an intelligent, artistic sensibility the Beatles are into the joke they realize that they are for sale they're in the marketplace I mean a young band calling their fourth album Beatles for sale they know what they're up to and they know that they're compromising who they are to become successful when it comes to when the band broke up do you think that it was a lot of added pressure from just the aspect of getting that I mean they were soaking up so much in a short amount of time where it was like, I don't know how anybody could walk out of that just sane or just not having, uh, uh, I guess, pent up aggression from me. You got to think you're got people screaming your name 24 seven. I mean, your privacy goes out the window at some point, but it's like in the beginning, it's fun. But then after a while, I mean, you're experimenting a bunch. And uh, I don't know if you ever see the movie Dewey Cox, where they have the little introduction with the Beatles in there and they go, nobody cares about Ringo. It's like, well, I, there's, there's so much pressure that's going on between them. And it's like, how do you try and find a sound and what adapts to new audiences? And that's the one thing about the Beatles is like, it doesn't really matter what age you kind of were, you know, you could listen to it. There's older generations that listen to it, younger generations that listen to it. The music just kind of transcends all boundaries. And I wouldn't even be able to put it in a genre if you asked me. No, it's I people, 
uh, people all the time because they know I'm a, a Beatles fan and a Beatles scholar, an ACA fan, an academic fan. That's just a little phrase that hopefully will make your listeners laugh. People come up to me all the time and say, oh, I don't like the Beatles. And I go, what do you mean? Which Beatles do you mean? I mean, so then you could play them Love Me Do and then play them Revolution Number 9. And you say that's not the same group. People just have always say things like that. I don't like them. And I say, which Beatles do you not like? The Beatles that recorded Tomorrow Never Knows or the Beatles that recorded She Loves You. I mean, you could say, I've heard people say, I don't like Picasso. I go, what? Do you mean the Cubist period or the Blue period? I mean, if you're going to make flip statements like that to me, I'm going to say, go away, take a deep dive into the Beatles music. And then you will not be coming out with such cliched, shallow comments about, you know, what are essentially great artists. And they've essentially created um, almost a perfect canon of albums. Even their Yellow Submarine soundtrack album from January 1969, the flip side of that vinyl record is George Martin orchestrations of the soundtrack of for the soundtrack of the album. So, yeah, if you're a classical music person, George Martin was trying to write a classical symphony when he was nine years old. Not only did you have the Beatles, you had an incredibly well-informed, classically trained producer helping the Beatles. Also, the Beatles could attract anybody to their records in the mid-60s. The um, Alan Civil plays French horn and for no one, Beautiful. We've got um, Dave Mason playing piccolo high trumpet on Penny Lane. The Beatles could attract anyone. So each of their songs is an incredible, each of their songs are incredibly rich texts of absolutely disparate strains of interconnecting um, musical influences. So when people come up to me and say, I don't like the Beatles, I genuinely say, which Beatles? I don't actually know what you're talking about. And I mean, I think the proof is in the pudding. I would imagine that, um, I don't know if longevity is a test of art, but really good, but let's say it is. I reckon in two, 300 years time, time, people will be listening to Beatles songs. They'll be singing Beatles songs. I mean, it's 60 years almost since their first records. And well, it is exactly 60 years from from the release of their first single. And there's no sign of the Beatles cultural phenomenon abating at the moment. I mean, the Beatles, the further the further away you get from them, the bigger they, they seem they seem to get. And that is absolutely phenomenal. Also, parents tell me all the time that they play Yellow Submarine or Oh the Deal the Dad of their children to babies, to two to toddlers two, three-year-olds, they start dancing and singing along. It's absolutely incredible. Um, Also, I think another reason the Beatles are still so successful is that they're absolutely waved to the national mythology of England. They're part of the nationalist mythology of England. I mean, there's Beatles museums all over Liverpool. There's Abbey Road Recording Studios. In fact, I went up to Abbey Road Recording Studios when I was writing the Beatles in fandom and handed out questionnaires and lots of North Americans told me they visited three places when they came to London. They went to Shakespeare's Globe, Buckingham Palace and Abbey Road and many told me that they went to Heathrow Airport and they got on a taxi and they went straight to Abbey Road. I think if you google the UK it says, um, you know, it talks about the, the royal family and then a sentence or two later it mentions the Beatles. So the Beatles are synonymous with the 1960s. They're also um, absolutely part of England's um, national narrative. They're part of the UK's mythology. Also, their image and their music is completely ubiquitous. You could go and see a statue of John Lennon in Cuba. Um, You could go all over the world and the Beatles seem to be everywhere, still the biggest selling artists. Now, that is absolutely incredible. I think we were saying at the start of the podcast as well that being so famous did give them a lot of unwanted attention. As you say, I don't know how they dealt with the pressure. In fact, 
they stopped playing live on the 29th of August, 1966. And apart from when they played on uh, the roof of Apple Savile Row on the 30th of January, 1969, apart from that one-off concert, after the 29th of August, 1966, they never toured and they never played again because they couldn't stand the pressure. They were getting death threats from the Ku Klux Klan. They were um, chased out of the Philippines by Amelda Marcus and, and her family. They had death threats by right-wing organizations in Japan. And I mean, just when I teach my Beatles course at St. Mary's, I put a picture of the Beatles up from August 1962, before they're famous. And there's these four naive guys standing there. And I point to them all and tell the students who these guys are. And I go, be careful what you wish for. Be careful about fame. Because this guy here, John Lennon, was shot in the back four times and murdered. One bullet missed. He was shot at five times. George Harrison was stabbed, I think it was 14 times, by an intruder in his house and died from um, cancer two years later. Obviously, the trauma really did affect him. And Paul and Ringo have just been very, very lucky to be able to deal with this fame. So it, it's an absolutely crazy, insane, supernatural story, I think. What's the excuse the guy gave for shooting John Lennon out in front of his hotel? He's still been denied parole the, the guy um is called mark chapman i know i shouldn't really say his name rolling stone for example never mentioned his name because they're so disgusted with him and rightly so but um mark chapman has been asked i mean the john lennon was murdered on the 8th of december 1980 so that's what's that 42 years ago so journalists the media everybody's been asking why he did it for 42 years he eventually um fessed up and said the only reason he killed John Lennon was that he was a Beatle. And he knew he could, he would be the most famous person he could murder. So he did it to get famous. I mean, if he'd shot anybody else, he wouldn't have got as famous. He had a target. He went, the Beatles are the most famous people in the world. I'm going to kill a Beatle and I'll get really famous. And he's fessed up to that. He said, listen, that's why I did it. I mean, there was all sorts of um, rumors about it initially that, you know, it was diminished responsibility. But he said, no, I, I was fine. I was sane and I murdered him to get famous. I know you mentioned the conspiracy stuff um, that you had in your book as well, too, because I, I, my buddy mentioned that there was a conspiracy that John Lennon didn't actually die. And it was the aspect that they got a replacement because they were so worried about the culture of experiencing such loss like that, such fan loss um, that they would snap. There's two, there's two big, there's two um, fascinating rumors about the Beatles. The first one is that Paul McCartney died in a car accident in 1966, and he was replaced by a doppelganger called William Campbell. And all I can say is William Campbell must have been a very talented guy to replace Paul McCartney. Uh, that's the first rumor. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Um, also, John Lennon was murdered on the 8th of December, 1980. There's so many conspiracy theories um, about it that, you know, the CIA, um, American intelligence was involved. But I don't know if there's any real proof about that. There's lots of books have been written about John Lennon was um, murdered by um, CIA, but there's no conclusive proof about this at all. Um, this is the thing. The Beatles are so big that conspiracy theories attach themselves to the Beatles. I mean, obviously, Paul McCartney wasn't wasn't killed in a car crash, but there's still people out there believe that he was. Um, I don't believe the conspiracy theories, but there are some weird red flags that I do bring up, which is that if you look into the Marilyn Manson or Marilyn, no, Charles Manson case, uh, Vincent Bugulosi said had the Helter Skelter model, but he said he was hearing messages off of the Beatles White Album. Um, That's absolutely true. You were talking about Tom O'Neill. I've read his book and I listened to his podcast and Joe, Joe Rogan. It was absolutely fascinating that the CIA had safe houses in San Francisco with one-way glass and they would give LSD to hippies and watch them make... Operation Midnight Climax. Yep, have sex together. Also, Manson seemed to walk in and out of parole 
at will. I mean, there's rumors that he was, you know, been employed by the CIA. I'm not sure about that. But what I will say is Well, that- the, the truth in that is that um, the San Francisco police, and this is what Tom O'Neill didn't get. Um, uh, Brad Schweiber was on my show. He wrote a book called Reverend Zen that he, in the beginning he talks about it. Um, this the the police down there knew where Charles Manson was, and they could have caught him on any prostitution charges, drug charges, and all that. But the police were told not to go after him from higher authority, and nobody's found out who that person that called that name was. I mean, if, you're, if your listeners are interested in this, uh, Tom O'Neill's book Chaos yeah. talks about what you've just said. Also, it's a very, it's, it's at least a three-hour podcast with Joe Rogan, and he talks about this as well. What, what I will say is, though, that um, MI5, MI6, British intelligence, the CIA, they genuinely were really worried about the hippie counterculture in the 1960s. I was just on Sky News recently talking about, I mean, the monkeys, I mean, Mickey Dolenz from the monkeys is suing the FBI so they can release the files on the monkeys. I mean, if they're worried about the monkeys, they're going to be really worried about Bob Dylan and the Beatles and the Stones and Elvis. There was the FBI and files and Elvis, Jim Morrison, John Lennon. I mean, they they did try to deport John Lennon when he moved to New York in the early 70s. There's no doubt about that. And one of the stories I think that really does sum up how... Um, the intelligence services were um, took a uh, took a big interest in the rock music of the 1960s. Is the Rolling Stones, um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were busted for drugs in 1967 in Keith Richards's um, cottage in his house. Um, the press were tipped off before they were busted by the police. When the police arrived, Keith Richards, Marion Faithful, and Mick Jagger. They looked around for their friend, Acid Divi. Hey, wacky Acid Divi. Whimsical Acid Divi. Where is Acid Divi? Acid Divi was not there when the police arrived. Acid Divi was a plant from the intelligence services, and he's disappeared, and no one knows who he is. And basically, the CIA and British intelligence were trying to fit the Stones and the Beatles up with drug busts so they couldn't tour in America. Now, I don't know why they felt so threatened by popular music, but they certainly did. And that is a very spooky story. That would make anybody paranoid. I mean, when I was researching this book as well, I was talking to Beatles fans and about their um, conspiracy theories. It was amazing. But I just want one little addendum to that. The whole Paul is dead thing is completely fantastical whimsical just dreamt up by fans there's no there's no proof for that at all but what you just said to me at the start of the podcast certainly um the military industrial complex um british and american intelligence they're very keen just to have a little look and make sure that these these long-haired rock groups are towing the line and they're not doing anything to outrageous that's going to upset the population. I mean, the 1960s was a powder keg, wasn't it? Young people are trying to disrupt the Democratic Conference in in 1968 to try to stop the Vietnam War. People are marching against the Vietnam War, civil rights. It was a really, really political, radical time. So, you know, if you're going to get, if rock groups are going to start getting political, if rock groups are going to start taking mind-altering drugs, which are very, very dangerous, I mean, LSD is like playing Russian roulette with your your sanity. I know that psilocybin and drugs like that now are used uh, medically at the Johns Hopkins Institute and all of that. That's absolutely great. That's fine. But there's definitely so many strange um, um, events are coalescing in the 1960s to make the authorities worried about what's going on. Dr. Timothy Leary is getting sacked from Harvard for using LSD to experiment. Um, with his students. John Lennon is growing his hair long. He's making naked, he's shooting naked album covers with Yoko. He's talking in interviews about his drug use. He is very vocal about ending the Vietnam. He saw a UFO. He saw a UFO. Don't forget. He saw he saw a UFO in 1974 when he was living in New York with May Pang. Apparently he was naked on his balcony and he looked up and he saw a UFO. 
and he went back into May and said, oh, I've just seen a UFO. And I don't know, maybe he was, again, experimenting with the disco biscuits. I'm not sure. I also read in a book, and I can't give you the actual page reference. He does, there's an interview somewhere, maybe we could Google this and find it. John Lennon does talk about when he was living in Dakota with Yoko, that he woke up in the middle of the night and Yoko was asleep and there was aliens, little green men at the end of his bed. So I, mean, I had an author on here talk about um he was he is a, not, he, he, sorry to drop he is a bit I think Lennon's a bit of a loose cannon and a bit of an unreliable witness, but you know he's he's fascinating. Sorry, Robbie. I, I had an author on here, um Daniel, I forgot Daniel Halperin, and he was talking about UFOs and he brought up the John Lennon incident where he saw multiple UFOs and stuff like that. And his more idea was that he thinks that we project it from inside of us and it's these ideas. But I mean, I've talked to Nick Pope from Ancient Aliens, and I could tell you when you start looking through government documents and they're talking about it, it's a little bit weird. Now I don't go full conspiratorial when it comes to files on john lennon what i think it probably was which was a common tactic back then with activists which is just using his name um calling in a threat doing some type of thing where it would cause police to get involved and next you know get arrested and then that would hurt some of his career do something to his fans to be detracted from the message that he because there was that fear i mean anybody that was writing a song that wasn't pro vietnam i mean they created a fake magazine on college institutions called the rat the radical observer and it was all like actually going to vietnam's uh, the war is a good thing and it's like Nobody even realized that it was an FBI created magazine. They invaded Hollywood. They did so much. And I mean, the impact that those people have, and you can really tell the fact that a conspiracy gets made up about if the person's still alive after they were killed is because the fans can't get over the fact that this just happened. I mean, it's a common example with JFK. They say, oh, JFK, nobody could believe it was a lone nut. And it was like, well, there's more than that. There's like documentation to back up a lot of that aspect that there was intel. I even had Blakey on here admit that he was an intelligence guy. Oswald had intelligence connections. And it's like you start understanding like there are some things people can't let go. And then there's things that get created on the deep, dark Internet. And with John Lennon and uh, his career and then also a lot of the band members, I mean, their impact was massive to a scale where, I mean, if you find out in the newspaper on the news that John Lennon was just killed out in front of his hotel room, nobody, everyone's going to turn it off and lay in bed and say, this isn't real, this isn't happening. But those files make it even a little bit more suspicious where I just go, what tactics were the intelligence agencies using? to just make his life hell, even if it was, wasn't making his life hell, just make his life difficult, make his touring difficult. I mean, that aspect of what they were deeming or demonizing as bad was just someone singing about, we shouldn't be in war right now or singing. No, the, you've, you've actually, you've, you've, you've almost, um, you, you've almost, you're almost referencing um, John Lennon's um, song, give peace a chance. Now that is incredibly um, radical statement to make in 1969 and to sing it in the context um, of the Vietnam War give peace a chance John Lennon was given interviews in 1969 and he was using the phrase military industrial complex they don't like me they don't like me because I'm a peacenik they don't like me because I'm anti-war I've written a song called give, give peace a chance also people tend to forget that between 1968 and 1969, John Lennon was adopting um, radical tactics that you would that you would associate with uh, Guy Debord and the the French Situationists in 1968, where they would use um, surrealism, crazy non sequiturs, wild demonstrations, graffiti. They would use all of this to try to um, status invert to try to challenge the, the authorities. So John Lennon in 1969 went on a bed in for peace where he sat in bed and he talked about peace. He went around in press conferences and Yoko and John Lennon actually covered themselves in a bag to get attention. So in a way, it wasn't exactly um, a socialist, Marxist, sort of left-wing ideology that he had. Maybe that was there somewhere. He was using uh, humor, uh, situationalist tactics, surrealism, art happenings, uh, protest, bed for peace, songs about peace. 
he was using all of this to try to advertise peace, as he said at the time, like soap or like soup tins. He wanted pack, wanted to package and sell peace. There's a really famous picture from 1969, which has their billboard campaign that went through all the major cities in the world, and it just said, war is over if you want it. And there's a famous picture, I think it might be, it might be Chicago or Manhattan, where the war is over poster is right beside a poster for military recruitment into the US Army. So, I mean, you're certainly, just to absolutely concur with what you're saying, what I've just delineated about John Lennon's um, autobiography in the last five minutes, you're absolutely, he is going to garner a lot of attention from everybody with that type of behavior. He's going to get um, attention from deranged, crazy fans who think that Paul is dead. He's going he's gonna to get attention from um, governments. He's going to get attention from politicos. In fact, he was getting it from everybody. The new left in the UK did not like the Beatles and John Lennon. They thought they sold out to the, the capitalist machine in a sense, that they were just money makers and capitalists. The right thought that the Beatles were, were communists. I mean, they couldn't win. They were, they were in the firing line from both sides. And the more you think about it, I can't think of too many major celebrities who would have done a peace campaign like that. I felt that John Lennon saw through fame saw that it was shallow, it was empty, and he thought, well, look, the only thing I can try to do with it is try to bring some attention to one of the major issues of the times, which is the Vietnam War. And when he was doing the peace campaigns, Nixon was starting to escalate the Vietnam War. So, honestly, Robbie, wouldn't be surprised if he got a bit of unwanted attention from British and American intelligence. I don't know. What do you think? There's a little bit of controversial stuff with Timothy Leary. Um, when people ask why was hint, uh, Nixon going for an all-out hunt on this guy. Um, and, I mean, I can see both sides of this. One, he was giving LSD. I mean, he did have this idea set and setting, but he was also handing it to people and expecting them to, like, he wasn't even sitting with them and letting them go through it. He was just handing it out. Like, here, take this, take this, take this. That's very bad. But the other side of that is where you start seeing him get mixed up with the weather underground and they break him out of jail and all this type of stuff. Nixon, like basically blacklisted this guy as this guy needs to be locked up as a sign of like, there's none of this tolerance here in America. So it was a message. And I mean, John Lennon being a person that, you know, spray painting stuff and all this stuff against the war. I mean, that's a message. It's a message getting sent either way and people are going to receive it as such. I mean, I, I don't think he was killed by a government official. I definitely probably thought he was killed by some uh, person that was deranged. But I think you land in this area of what did he get stronger after he died? A message that's being said or a message that really sinks in has more impact when someone passes who was saying it. And I think it, when that, you, that's very true. Yeah, sorry. Well, yeah, that's very true. It's just interesting what you said there as well. If you go and watch um, the John Lennon, Yoko Ono bed-ins, just watch quite closely. Who's sitting on the bed beside John Lennon? Dr. Timothy Leary. Are you Are you really? Really? Absolutely. 100%. Leary is sitting with John Lennon. And in fact, Timothy Leary goes to John Lennon. I'm running to be governor of California, which he did. Could you write a song for my campaign? And John Lennon, Julie produced Come Together. Come Together was written as a campaign song for Dr. Timothy Leary. So uh, then after he hung out with Timothy Leary um, during the bedding campaigns, Lennon got very friendly with the, uh, the Black Panthers in the early 70s as well. Um, in 1972, Lennon released an album called Sometime in New York City, where he talked about the Irish situation. He talked about the Vietnam War. He wrote a song for um, Angela Davis. He referenced the Black Panthers. So Lennon went through a really radical stage. So, you know, this is, this is not, I mean, it's amazing how we started this podcast. I'm talking about the Beatles in 1963. Lovely little mop tops, nice little suits, and singing "Love Me Do" and "She Loves You" and "Oh, Get You Into My Life." Lovely little songs, 
But by the end of the 60s, they're writing songs that are growing up songs about big issues, Vietnam, uh, drugs. Lady Madonna, man. Yep. That, did you say Lady Madonna? That's my favorite one. Paul McCartney absolutely writes brilliant um, character songs. Um, the critic Sheila Whiteley called them dime store novel um, songs. He actually gets little characters in the songs like Eleanor Rigby, Lady Madonna, Obla D, Obla Da, and he gets these characters to meet and to interact. Absolutely fantastic. And also a superstar like Paul McCartney to completely empathise with a hard-working nine-to-five woman, a bit like his mum was a hard-working nurse in Liverpool. His total empathy for working-class, struggling um, female protagonists in the songs, that's absolutely incredible. And one of McCartney's first hits after the Beatles broke up was called Another Day, and it was about this the grind of the nine-to-five, and the protagonist in the song Another Day is getting up, going to work. It's just another day. So the, the empathy that McCartney uses in his songwriting is incredible. Do you think that they are going to be something that's going to stay on forever because of the fact they're so intertwined with the hippies culture and that kind of activist counterculture revolution that was kind of sparking up? I mean, we could sit here and talk about the intelligence aspects of trying to shut down that type of talk. But the fact that that is a historical event that is going to I mean, it's it's taught in our history of the 60s and 70s, the turbulent times, and they're intertwined with that. When someone says Woodstock, you think. Beatles immediately, usually, and it's because uh, they were, they didn't play Woodstock. Actually, I mean, Lennon was a big admirer of the. It's just that that idea of Woodstock is like flowers in the hair and this peace and love and hippie movement, and that's the Beatles kind of get hooked to that. Did you this... did you mention flowers? Yeah, I did flowers. It's, it's, <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's very flowery, isn't it? Um, your question was about the the Beatles' longevity. I think absolutely. The Beatles, if you look at a history book, they're absolutely synonymous with the 1960s. So that's one reason that their image will resonate forever. Another reason is that they wrote folk songs. Folk means people. They, they were the people's music. These songs were, for the most part, even when they got radical and wrote crazy, roly-poly songs about, you know, war or drugs or our relationships breaking up. They were usually couched in three or four minutes. They usually had wonderful melodies and people could sing along. So the fact that they produced folk music, meaning people's music, I think their songs will um, resonate for hundreds and hundreds of years because they're, in a way they're simple, but doing something simple is very, very difficult. And the Beatles managed it. I even, I read McCartney's solo career highly as well. You know, many of his albums are as good as Beatles albums. So we've really got major Beatles were and are major artists who are going to influence, I think, our culture for years and years and years. We can never tell, though, because um, one of my colleagues at university walks into um, a creative writing class and he says, um, how many of you have heard of Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author of Tarzan? And none of the students put their hands up. And he goes, interesting because he was the biggest selling novelist in the 1920s. He was the JK ruling of his time. But we can never predict. But to immediately contradict myself, I do really think that the Beatles music, the Beatles image has got legs because they're um, associated with the 1960s. Also, because their music is so catchy and it's their, their music is just earworms. When you hear a Beatles song, you can't stop singing it. It just enters into your head and it's going to stay there. I wonder if it's the name that's only going to be the thing that lasts is the word Beatles or the music. Like when people hear the band, oh, yeah, Beatles band. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but the individual people that created that, like everyone kind of forgot about Ringo. You know, the new generation probably doesn't know about that. And John Lennon and I think Paul McCartney are like the two that kind of get the most remembered and sound of the band but i wonder if that's going to eventually just turn into oh it's the beatles it's the and then the four names that nobody can remember because they just remember the band no, but robbie it's that's a brilliant question i mean we just can't predict can we we haven't got we can't crystal ball this we just don't know 
I would make a guess because they haven't really recorded a note in anger since late 1969. That's a long time ago. And we're still listening to them. I mean, every year they seem to get a reboot. They got a reboot with Britpop, with Oasis and Blur. They got a reboot in 2000 when Beatles won, which was the name of their greatest hits album, was the biggest selling album of the year in 2000. In 2021, Peter Jackson released Get Back, a Beatles film. Um, so we really don't know. Also, as I've um, referenced a little bit earlier in this chat, they're absolutely, they're, they're part of the national narrative of being English, being British. They're absolutely wedded to that. I mean, Robbie, if we went to Liverpool next week, we would go to John and Paul's houses are owned by the National Trust. We would go in there. There's um, there's a Beatles story down by the docks. There's the magical, there's a Myst Magical Mystery Tour Museum on Matthew Street. There's the Cavern Club. I mean, Liverpool is a really fascinating place, and it's not just known for the Beatles. I don't want to say that, but just for the sake of rhetoric. Beatles is Liverpool's like Beatles Disneyland. I mean, we could. I I haven't even mentioned half the Beatle attractions in Liverpool. Think of those statues from the James Corden, Paul McCartney, um, Carpool Karaoke. How famous those statues are! Even if you're not interested in the Beatles, if you go to Liverpool, you're going to stand by those by those statues. So there's something about the Beatles have really entered the structures and the grammar and the culture of everything to do with um you know western society if you like they're really wedded to that whole anglo-american individualism capitalism if you like statues museums abbey road didn't somebody damage one of the statues there's a story from the 90s that there was a topiary a topiary statue which is basically figures made out of hedges of the Beatles. And Ringo was on um, a, a chat show, the Jonathan Ross chat show. He's a big chat show host in the UK. And Ringo, uh, Jonathan Ross asked him and said, look, do you miss Liverpool? And he went, no, I don't miss it at all. And someone cut the head off the Ringo topiary hedge figure in Liverpool, much to the amusement of Paul McCartney. So, all they had to do is just make one flippant remark and they would get a lot of get a lot of flag. I mean, poor Ringo. Ringo was born on the 7th of July 1940 into an area in Liverpool called the Dingle. He did not have an indoor toilet. He was barefoot a lot of the time. He was very, very sick as a child, peritonitis he had. He was he was given the last rites when he was a child. He missed all his education. So you can sort of forgive him for saying, I'm probably happier now you know, whizzing between Monaco and Los Angeles. But, you know, they're big. They're going to, if they say something, they're going to get a lot of attention. That's what scares me about that fame thing I mentioned about how getting it to your, I guess, getting into your head a little bit about the aggression and the kind of built up tension from it. Because, I mean, you make a statement like that. It's not even that big of a statement, but you're coming across people that normal people. I wouldn't say people that have like a little bit of a bend to their mind, but some people that just snap at like a hair trigger. And you got to think like that, that, that could be a passionate fandom. That could be someone that stalks you and looks through your mail and steals your underwear. I don't know, but it can also be deranged fandom. Well, the Michael Ibram, the chap that broke into George Harrison's um, Gothic mansion in Henley upon Thames and stabbed him. He was, he had serious, um, he had serious psychiatric problems. He thought that the Beatles were, witches or warlocks flying around in broomsticks and he thought they were sending him messages a bit like you said about um about Arthur charles Shelter. manson yeah yeah charles manson was convinced that well you look, look at the um look at roman polanski's house after sharon Tate was murdered um and then the the next night they went to another house Libyanko, was it and they murdered people as well and they dobbed helter skelter the name of a beatles song in blood on the walls they dubbed the title of a Beatles song, Piggies, on the walls. And Charles Manson, even that sort of Cole Porter song, what do you call it, Honey Pie, Sail Across the Atlantic, just a very cheesy song. He thought the Beatles were sending him messages to sail across the Atlantic and go and hang out with the Beatles 
in London. I mean, completely unhinged. I mean, Manson thought that Helter Skelter was a message for um, for Manson and his followers to go out and murder lots of people, then pin it on the black community who would rise up and have a revolution. They would be quashed. And then Manson and his followers would come out and take over America. I mean, how could the Beatles deal with that? I mean, it's unbelievable, the story. I mean, again, with my students, I show the students the cover of the Abbey Road album. And it was the 8th of August, 1969, when photographer Ian McMillan climbs up some steps and takes that picture of the four Beatles walking across Abbey Road. Okay, the 9th of August, 1969, while the Beatles have just been all hippie and loving and writing nice songs and walking across the Zebra Crossing. The next day, Manson's followers start their murderous campaign in Roman Polanski's house in Los Angeles. So, I mean, it's just, it's incredible that they, how they can deal with being even associated with something like that. I think if you listen to Tom O'Neill's podcast, he thinks that that Bugilosi, that that model, the Helter Skelter model was created in a sense. Um, there's some stuff in that that I that I think Tom O'Neill proves that uh, Vince Bugilosi was just looking to put away Manson. Like Manson technically didn't kill anybody. I'm not defending him, but they did. No, he commit- thought he thought he thought he killed someone though. Do you remember he shot someone in the stomach and they survived? They um his trial, like the reason why they weren't taking it seriously, they also put a prosecutor on the defendant's side and stuff like that but there's just so much about like i i get the conspiracy stuff but there's just so much about the culture that makes it so i wouldn't say fascinating just makes it so misunderstood i don't know misunderstood i'm not saying manson was misunderstood i just think it's just it's difficult to understand the amount of like i mean COINTELPRO was fbi's invasion into like the black Panther. i mean we don't know how long that was going on for that could have been other accounts of course there's the fred hampton story as well yeah his assassination yeah i mean i don't really want to go into that too much but that's very dodgy there's just there's just this that 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 idea that uh, John Lennon is talking about the military industrial complex and saying that on air, like we barely even hear about that get talked about today, and we know it exists, but it's this idea, this like capitalist system that you really get to see kind of shake a little bit when it hits the '60s and '70s. It's this this counterculture that was out there, and it might seem like on the surface for a lot of people that maybe weren't aware that there was this revolution, but people had to be aware it was starting to be everywhere. You started to look. And that to me is why I like the sixties and seventies because looking into that and seeing like, I mean, some of them are, I, I'm not political, but some would probably be more way left than I would probably ever associate with. But it's interesting to see like their feelings about things and how passionate they're. I don't believe throwing paint on something is a way to get your message across. But at that time, that's what you kind of had to do. Yeah. I mean, the Beatles in many ways were good little capitalists and good earners as well. So, and then they weren't. Apart from the peace campaign, they, the Beatles certainly weren't overly ideological. I think they paid to play. They paid to play. When To get a message across, you got to f- jump through some hoops of what they want you to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, when you really, you know, take a, when you drill down into the Beatles politics as well as individuals, they, they're a little bit, they're not very, um, focused or precise exactly. I mean, George Harrison was absolutely a fiscal conservative. He moaned about taxes his whole life. I saw an interview once where he said, oh, I don't like the, the British Labour Party, which is weird. His dad was a trade union guy in the buses. He grew up in working class Liverpool. McCartney's very socially conscious and he's very intelligent. He's very clever. He lets um, he will get involved in causes and not say too much about it. I mean, he started a university in his home, his hometown, the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. I mean, he really has put money back into very good causes, very subtly and in a very intelligent and, and in, in a way that's not ideological. Ringo laterally has been talking about Brexit being a good thing. He's just, he's really, he doesn't particularly have a, you know, a Labour or a, a socialist um, ideological view in the world. John Lennon did flit around with, um, politics a little bit and i think if you at the end of his life he actually said he wasn't political at all and he wouldn't tie his colors to any 
political ma mass. But in the late 1960s, early 70s, he certainly would have been um, more or less an adv advocate for the British Labour Party. But I think he really liked to bypass the whole political process and just to, as I said earlier, get involved in art happenings or situationist happenings or using humour to try to um, support causes that he believed in. So it's it's weird that that the British British and American intelligence did even get worried about the Beatles because they they weren't really ideological performers. And as I said earlier, in the nineteen sixties, the the New Left in England in the UK didn't like the Beatles. I mean, LSE students didn't like them at all. They thought they were just selfish capitalists. They would start to make money. So. It, it, the fact they got so much attention from intelligence on both sides of the Atlantic is just 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 show you that maybe Nixon was a bit paranoid, as you said. It just shows that so much had happened in the nineteen sixties that people were very very worried about it. The military industrial complex thought this is a bit strange. We've got to keep an eye on what's happening. Well, it's the voice of the people. They had the voice of the people. You know, they were writing songs that resonated with the voice of the people. I think that's something new. Um, I don't really see a whole lot of that happening today. You know, we we could. There's a little more modern day crises that are going on. Seems like we're a bit more divided than ever. Um, but I think you know, back then, the voice of the people aspect of his music and you know what they were saying, even if, and you probably see with fandom. People probably like their earlier stuff and then probably like their later stuff. And then there's probably contention. Yeah. I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing it back. But I, th I think with um the, I guess the, it's kind of like Elvis. Elvis was all over the board, um, karate, music, movies. And then he wanted to be an FBI agent. But then you have the Beatles and their music was, I guess, transitioning in so many different directions. Well, that Elvis Presley very famously had an audience with Richard Nixon. You've seen the photographs of... Yeah. Richard Nixon and Elvis together, and he he said, "You've got to keep those communist Beatles out of America, Mr. President." I don't I don't know why he's I don't know he didn't want people stealing his fame. He didn't want people stealing his fame, and the sorry, Beatles Mark, did. if you're listening. Yeah, Mark Duffett. Obviously, the Beatles are much greater artists than Elvis Presley. He's gonna get so mad at that. I know he is. <laughs> I look. I'm a Beatles fan. I like Elvis as well too. Uh, but I think Elvis was in. A, I love Elvis. Yeah, there was just a little bit of a. I wouldn't say a time gap, but a different. I would say a culture gap a little bit. I mean, if you like the classics, I like Elvis. But if you like just, I don't know, just a music that you can really enjoy it. And if you're mad, if you're happy, um, if you're sad, you could probably do that with Elvis. But Beatles would be the go-to for me. Well, the, the thing about as I've, I'm starting to get a bit boring because, but I'll allude to again. The thing about the Beatles is that they've got four singers, I'll include Ringo. They've got four <laughs> They've got, no, yeah, sorry. They've got four frontmen in the Beatles. They've got three songwriters. They've got an incredibly um, imaginative um, and an artistic producer. So, listen to any Beatles record the, the one record is different from the last and they have they absolutely have an art school mentality as well I mean they just want to transform and change of every album I mean just look at the red and blue albums the compilation albums from the 1970s just hold up the album and you see the Beatles in 1963 and really ill-fitting badly tailored suits looking down from the balcony in Manchester Square, and there's these little innocent guys with funny little haircuts and all wearing matching suits. Then flip the album over, and they're in exactly the same spot on that balcony in Manchester Square. And they've got beards, they've got long hair, they've absolutely transformed. And it's because they, in a way, they, in many ways, they represent the period. They're the personification of the 1960s, the embodiment of the 1960s. I mean, the uh, the composer Arl. Aaron Copeland said, if you want to understand the 1960s, listen to the music of the Beatles. And so in many ways, they almost represent their generation. I think the Beatles, I think Elvis, by the late 50s, he was getting a little bit tired of fame. He had received a lot of criticism. He went into the army. 
Then he started starring in Hollywood musicals. And he felt a little bit, he's slightly older generation. He didn't quite gel with the, the psychedelic 60s as much as the Beatles. A, a little bit, but not to the same extent. He was, um, he's a 50s hero in a sense. And the Beatles are 60s heroes. Well, Richard, I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find your books, your links? You got a Twitter handle as well, too? Yes, my Twitter handle's at Rumpery. They can find me on Facebook as well. Just put Richard Mills in. Um, my books, um, I've got, I'm going to hold it up if you put this on YouTube. The Beatles and Fandom is, I'll give it its full title. Is the your head going to explode? <laughs> I told a journalist that was my mother screaming at her. At a, a Beatles concert, it's not true, but they didn't believe it. Uh, it's my book, The Beatles and Fandom, is published on Bloomsbury. It's available in Amazon. It's available in any bookshop. Just Google it. Um, the paperback's twenty pounds, um, twenty five pounds in Bloomsbury, and you can get it on Amazon. And it's got lots of really good critical reviews as well. Um, it's an academic book, but I think it's very accessible. And as I said, I've got two more books coming out in Bloomsbury next year and then i've got an agent to write a very commercial book the year after that so maybe we'll speak again when my fabulously commercial book comes out i have mark i love it i love your um i love the tagline of your podcast you know where do the we're gonna have a very sort of spontaneous conversation and i think that's what we've done what's the tagline of your podcast Uh, conversations with people never knowing where it goes well, that just sums up any conversation with me, I think, Robbie. That's the fun part, man. Life is too serious to just sit there and have questions. Yeah, I, ho- I, hope, I, I hope I didn't sound too serious because the thing about the Beatles is that their music really makes you feel good. If you're in a bad mood, you put on a Beatles song and you're you're, you're happy, you're, you're dancing. I mean, it got a bit heavy what we were talking about. We were talking about, you know, the Paul is Dead rumour, John Lennon's murder. Um, but as you said, in the end, what will be remembered about the Beatles is that they brought joy and happiness into people's lives. Well, I appreciate it, everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank and stay tuned for next episode.